Welcome to Key Change, the COC's new podcast exploring everything about opera from a fresh perspective. We're your hosts, Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. And today we'll be glimpsing into opera's future and the process of creation. So because so many of the works that we attend at the opera tend to be from the past, thinking about how operas are created isn't necessarily something that's at the forefront of our minds or the forefront of conversations. So we're really excited to give some insight into that and how it fits into the arc of attending opera and creating opera. Yeah, I really like this to close our first season because it's just a beginning. We're not really ending at all. Where the end is just a new beginning. Exactly. I'm a massive fan of our first guest. Any sci-fi readers out there might be familiar with this name, Cherie Dimaline. She's a best-selling writer. She's from the Georgian Bay Métis community, and she's written over five books for teens and adults. Her novel, The Marrow Thieves, won numerous awards, including the Governor General's Award and was a CBC Canada Reads finalist. Cherie has really beautiful ways about talking about opera that are really connected to our physical bodies, our physiology, our teeth, our bones, our ribcage. So we're really looking forward to sharing this with you. And we'll also be hearing from composer Ian Cusson, the COC's composer-in-residence and recently appointed co-director of opera at the BAMP Centre for Arts and Creativity. You may have heard Ian's recent composition of Dodo Mon Tout Petit, commissioned by the COC and the National Arts Centre to replace the Cuyas Aria from Louis Riel. And he's also working on a new opera for young audiences at the COC called Fantasma. We'll hear more about that later. Little tidbit, too. It just so happens that myself and Ian and Cherie are all from the same hometown. And it's a cool me tea episode, too. Welcome to, say that again, Robin. What did you call it? The cool me tea episode? Yes, it is the cool <laughs> me tea episode. But anyway, let's first hear from Cherie. Hi, Shuri. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Robin. It seems there's a boom in speculative and futuristic science fiction in Indigenous media right now. Why do you think that is? There is this thing that happens when you write speculative fiction or when your work is categorized as speculative fiction, and that is that you're given more freedom. And in particular, you have readers that come to the page who are more open. They're willing to journey further and farther with you. And and this really suits, I think, a lot of the storytelling tradition that a lot of Indigenous writers and storytellers uh, come from that we've grown up with, where, you know, there's an understanding of time as, as, you know, circular, as there's uh, other entities in the world besides the ones that are sort of corporeal in a way that we see every day. And so being under that umbrella of uh, futurisms and speculative fiction allows us to play within that space with a little more freedom. And I think also 
you know, we want to talk about the future. We want to talk about the future as much as we want to talk about the past because both move in a way that inform who we are uh, and where we are, which is an important conversation that that we always have. Uh, my community is a Métis community. We're on Anishinaabe land traditionally. And when we look at Anishinaabe traditions, one of the things that we have to do when we're making decisions or, or speaking or, or um, um, telling stories is to think about the time both in both directions. So you reach seven generations into the past uh, to pull out the teachings and the understandings and everything that's been left on the trail for you. You pick those up. And then you look seven generations into the future and you think about the impact of your words and your teachings and your stories and your decisions and you pull those back. So it is really is this work of weaving threads um, from both directions into the center place, which is where we are now. We are also present with our work. So we can speak to the fact, you know, so Empire of Wild is about uh, a, a creature, a trickster from uh, my community, uh, from where Julie's from, that is, uh, you know, sort of been called different things. He's a, a monster, I've heard in the, in the media, and that's fine. People have different words to describe him. Um, to us, he's very real. He is uh, this sort of, as, as people say, like a monster sort of creature, but he's really from us uh, and for us. And so he, he when I was growing up, uh, was lived and, and sort of, you know, tricked people at that place where our community turned into the town because it was dangerous for us as Indigenous girls to go into the town. So that's where he was. He was a warning. So these are very real stories. This is, you know, my life. This is my, these came from my grandmother, came from her grandmother, my grandfather's family. Um, so the fact that it is given different names doesn't bother me as long as I have an opportunity to say, that's great that, you know, this is the context you're holding him in. Here's his actual biography. Here's who he is. In this space that gets opened up by virtue of the speculative nature, by virtue of the futurism, what is there in there? I'm curious about what can then be explored in terms of relationships, but Indigenous relations to the Canadian state. Oh, everything. So here's the beautiful thing about, about writing in this space. If I choose as a woman, as an Indigenous person, uh, you know, as a member of a community that's considered marginalized or has experienced oppression... I can choose in that moment to leave that weight behind. It, 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 to me, it's one of the last decolonized spaces left. So we can move in those spaces. And this is why I also love telling queer stories in that space, because first of all, we belong everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, but also you can leave that oppression behind if you choose. For a moment, you can literally feel that burden lift off your shoulders and you can move in that space as your own beautiful entity. And, and then if you choose, you can take it head on. You can make that oppression or, or colonization the center point of the story because it allows you the opportunity to build new defenses and new weapons in that space. In terms of those futures that we need, like you said, and the weapons that emerge through your works in terms of what the characters draw on or what they rely upon to get to get through and to succeed on their journeys, mm -hmm. can you speak to us about what, what narratives may be being shaped by virtue of those ideas that you're offering? Empire of Wild uh, was a book that was written when I was incredibly homesick. Um, and I was living, let's see, at the time I was in Vancouver. And I was having a conversation with my mother 
And uh, I was saying, you know, I just don't, I just don't feel good and I can't figure it out. I don't know what you call this. Uh, and she said, I know exactly what it is. Uh, and when you're ready, I'll let you know what it is. And when I was making a decision about where I was going to go next, I said, you know, what, what, what is that, mom? Like, what, where, what do I need to do? And she said, you, you are homesick. You worked so hard to get out of this, this small place. And everywhere you went, all you did was write about it. It's, it's time to come home. And so I did. I came home. But Empire of Wild is a story that came out of homesick, but it came out of also a homesickness for this feeling, for, for um, this a narrative that I wanted to surround, not just myself, um, but, you know, especially my daughters. And that is this. Anytime that I opened a magazine or a newspaper, I turned on TV and I heard about Indigenous women, it was Indigenous women as victims. It was Indigenous women as statistics, as an acronym. It was Indigenous women in, in, a con, in a colonial context. So what had happened to us? Not the ways in which we were acting, but the ways in which we were acted upon. And I really, really wanted to, for just a moment, lift that weight. I, I address it. It's fully addressed that the heaviest weight that Indigenous women carry is not colonialism. It's love. It's the fact that we are still here. We are still telling stories. Many women carry their language and traditions. And we are a fast growing demographic. We are still creating families. We are still having babies, which means we still have hope. We still understand that our babies will have a place in the future and we are going to fight for that. And so I wanted to have a narrative of that heaviest weight, which is that, that love of beauty through it all in all its forms you know the, none of these characters are perfect you know being in that space allowed me to really do that thing that lens shift everything I write is from obviously uh, you know from my own point of view I don't know what it's like you know Lee Miracle who's a very profound Stalo and Métis uh, writer um, teacher just elder she always says uh, our responsibility as writers now is we need to we need to walk through the dark places, there's a lot of dark hallways, but we always have to leave a door open or a window open, especially for our young people. They need to know that even as we walk through darkness, there is always a way out. So Cherie, we're curious, what kind of relationship have you had to opera? What has been your experience with opera and then that you're working on something right now? So we'd love to hear about that too. I saw my first opera when I was in grade eight. It was a school trip. They took us to the Sky Dome and we saw Aida. Okay. And it was the first time I realized that I had a uterus. But it was the first time that something hit me in my body that made me realize that there were spaces that had potential beyond what I understood. Opera to me, opera music, opera voices, carve out this space. It's something that you don't listen to with your ears, right? It, it, it's a sound that manifests under your ribs. And so it's a different kind of experience. I guess it's like this. So for every job, there are, there's a tool. For every, you know, for example, every type of food we eat, there's, our teeth have different responsibilities, different, they're different tools. And for me, opera feels like an incisor tooth. It feels like the exact thing that we need to tear open new space. It, it comes at this pitch and this depth. It doesn't open a door. It, it opens a hatch in the floor that allows you to then start descending to a new depth. 
And so it's, it, it was never surprising to me that opera productions and attending the opera is very formal, right? It's not a casual thing. You plan it, you buy your tickets ahead of time, you dress up. I went to an opera a couple of years ago. I wore like a fascinator with like this very Beetlejuice sort of veil and felt fabulous. But part of that, you know, being prepared for it, going to it as an event is because it is very specific, deep uh, work. It's not something that I step into lightly. I only listen to opera when I'm ready to, mm-hmm. to deep dive. I did listen to opera when I was writing Empire of Wild. I think uh, Madame Butterfly was, was huge in there because it carves out the space that you must then confront uh, because it's all around you. It's sort of dropping you into the middle of the lake and it demands of you work. You know, for me, opera's always been fascinating. Uh, I go when I can. I'll be there when it reopens. Um, and and so uh, not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting with my agent and going through, you know, different emails that I come in and request. And he mentioned that there was, uh, you know, an email of someone is affiliated with um, the Canadian Opera Company. And so I was like, what's that about? I want to hear about that. So he forwarded the email. And it was uh, Ian Cusin, who's the composer in residence, um, explaining that he was from, you know, from this territory, from the Georgian Bay, um, and that he was interested in looking at making Empire of Wild into an opera production. And so I immediately was like, I need to talk to this guy. First of all, $10, he's related to me. If, he, <laughs> if he's a half-breed from my community, that's my cousin. Um, so, so we got on a Zoom, and, and yes... So I won $10 because he is my cousin. Um, but we talked about it. We talked about the space where, um, you know, there's Empire of Wild occupies that those deep spaces. It, you know, the woods are, you know, shaped like a rib cage. And there are uh, pitches and depths in there that I tried to capture in words that I don't think can go all the way. There's something very different about sound outside of the construct of a word, right? Words are like Lego. They're very blocky. You put them together to build an image. Uh, with something like, like opera, it, it, it's more fluid, right? And fluidity is movement. So where words can stay still, um, song and music allows you the opportunity to move through the experience. And, and, and Empire of Wild is all about movement, back home, forward, inwards, outwards. And so uh, I was very excited. And I really believe, and I, I said this to him, I said, you have to take it. Uh, I'll do whatever, you know, however you want me to be involved, because you are the person, this is your project. Like you're from here. We are, you're related to my grandmother, my grandmother. This is her story that I'm telling. You are the person that, that can take this forward. And I think it's interesting because, uh, you know, people are sort of surprised. I mean, you guys won't be surprised, but people are sort of surprised when like, indigeneity and indigenous stories sort of creep into other realms that are considered Western or colonial, right? But here's the thing, art that's considered colonized or out of the machine of colonization are still gifts. Every culture has the capacity to, to, for gifting. You know, so for example, Métis people, Robin uh, in, in the Red River, I have uh, distant ancestors from the Red River. So Métis people are known for our flower beadwork, where the, you know, my, my uh, grandmother, Maria Campbell, 
talks about this all the time, uh, writes about it, tells stories about, you know, we are the flower beadwork people. That is, that is what we're known for. But those designs came, you know, hundreds of years ago when, uh, you know, the voyagers and the whoever the hell was coming over uh, came over and they brought to trade. They had brought items to trade with the indigenous community. And so they brought beautiful fabric into the Métis settlement on the, along the Red River. And it had these beautiful flower patterns on it. And, oh, the women loved them. They'd never seen fabric like this before. So they traded and took them all. So they were like sold out at the, at the trading post. So the next time they went back uh, to Europe, they, they doubled the order. They're like more because we can get so much for this. Like they love these patterns. They love this fabric. They brought the fabric back and not one bolt sold. And they couldn't figure out why they were so popular. And it's because the women used those, those fabrics as a pattern for their beadwork. So they took that gift and they indigenized it into beadwork. So they no longer needed, uh, you know, that fabric because they had the patterns and they incorporated it into our clothing and our understanding of how we tell the stories of our family through those designs. I think, you know, when you, when you take something, uh, especially something like, like opera, which I don't think is any surprise that, you know, indigenous stories are moving into because what you have really is, is, human expression uh, and, and this, this uh, instinctual sound, the embodied sound, and then you have the sound from the orchestra, which is coming one step removed through the instruments. It's all a triumph because what you see is, you know, I don't, I don't, I've never heard of anyone going to the opera and saying like, wow, like the orchestra was amazing. I don't really remember any of the singers. I don't remember any of the performers. That part was not memorable, right? Like, you, know, you you remember both and most likely you talk about those voices and I'll say this you know my I have a very good friend uh, Richard Van Camp who is who is a dog rib Dene uh, a writer uh, just a, a beautiful storyteller but he uh, taught me once how to call the northern lights to you because that's from his territory and he said you know you take the your nails and your fingers and you rub them together and it creates a sound that calls the northern lights to you. And then you commune with them. And then when you're done, you send them home. And I was uh, teaching someone that, that sound. And uh, she said, wow, this is, and she was really blown away. Um, and, she, and I said, oh, it's, you know, it's really interesting. It's, you know, the stars are so powerful. And she said, no, I'm so amazed that my own body can make that sound. And there's something so special and unique about a specific sound that can come from your body, which of course is opera. How could that possibly, how, how do your lungs and your throat and your heart hold all that sound? So there's something magical about that, right? We have such great capacity. And as indigenous people, those are the spaces that we occupy. Often in opera, new work takes a backseat to legacy rap. That's something that we're trying to change. But literature, it's, that doesn't happen. You don't have publishers publishing the canon and at the expense of new work. With so many voices being published every day in literature, I'm wondering what you think about the importance of supporting new works and particularly the stories of new or underrepresented voices. 
Woo! I wish we had an hour. I got lots of stuff to say. So, okay. So let's, let's be, be succinct, Shuri. Okay. <laughs> I understand people, there was actually just something on Twitter the other day where a YA author jumped to the defense of classics, of classic works of literature. There was uh, uh, a lot of uh, negative reactions when the Marrow Thieves started replacing To Kill a Mockingbird in Canadian high schools on the English curriculum. And, and there's a few things that, that that brings up. One, that we're still considering the audience for art, for literature, for opera, for theater as white. Because if you looked at it from any other perspective, you would see how harmful some of that work is. Yes, I, this isn't, and this is the argument that we were often, you know, sort of countered with, you know, well, it's, this can't be like, you know, George Orwell's 1984, where we just rewrite the past and forget things. No, you're right. We, we, we can't rewrite the past, or we would, uh, and we can't forget it because we live in a society that is the result of those works. So here's the thing. I was on a call with uh, Janet Rogers, who's an incredible uh, Mohawk spoken word poet, publisher, writer, and my cousin, Wabagijik Rice, who's an author who wrote uh, Moon of the Crusted Snow. And she said, how important is it to you when you are carrying the stories from your communities forward? Because the stories that you're writing today then become a part of our tradition tomorrow. That was a really heavy weight. And I was like, well, I'll leave it to a Mohawk woman to just lay it on you. Like, here's the reality, kids. You're creating tradition. Because tradition, of course, is not history. It's not stagnant. It's a very living, breathing, moving thing. But it, it reminded me of this, that culture doesn't necessarily create art. It creates some art, right? It, some art is a reflection of culture. Profound works that are innovative and groundbreaking create uh, culture, right? It's not the other way around. It's, so what we need to consider is this. There is a place for you know, uh, older operas and older books, um, and, and that is within a context. They belong within a context. And because art has the responsibility to create culture, then we need to have space, real supported, vibrant space, so that we can evolve, so that we can create that future that we need. We cannot, if we exist in a vacuum where our art is only a reflection on the current culture, then we will never grow. We will never, in fact, we won't exist. We will, when something stops moving and growing, beating and breathing, it stops living. So to have a living culture, therefore, our art needs to create that culture. So it is a matter of, of grave importance to humanity globally that we have new voices supported. Otherwise, we are just slowly sinking into a shallow grave. And it doesn't need to be that way. So so when I talk to a lot of Indigenous kids, when I say, you know, I create work where you are the heroes, you are the center of the story, you are who we need. That is not political. That is not me trying to make people feel good. That is the absolute truth exactly how I understand it. We have teachings from the lodge that talk about the fact that we are at the end of the seventh fire. There are seven fires in, in, in our life, in, in the lifetime of humanity. We are at the end of the seventh fire. We're there, but there is a moment, there is an opportunity where an eighth fire can be lit and it will be lit by the young people, these new voices.
It was so great to hear Cherie speak about the importance of contemporary stories in opera. Yeah, and it's very exciting to think about how stories from non-urban landscapes can inform contemporary opera practice. So what are those stories and what are those communities in those more rural settings? And what stories do they have to tell? What artists are we going to hear from next that are going to completely shift the way we view ourselves? Speaking of which, here is a great artist who I know has already shifted my perception of many aspects of opera creation, Ian Cusson. Good morning, Ian. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Many listeners might immediately imagine composers like Mozart, Verdi, Puccini when they think of opera. Tell us, how has the job of composer changed since much of the standard canon was written? Well, I think in some ways the, the job is still very similar. I mean, we the expectation is that, um, you know, a composer is going to write uh, a score that is to be sung and performed possibly with orchestra. And the goal of creating dramatic stage music, if you will, is, is, is the same. Um, I think what's changed really is the world in some ways. I mean, we're a world that is far more connected. We can access anything just by, by virtue of the internet. We have the opportunity to hear sounds that composers, you know, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, even 100 years ago may not have heard as readily. So we're a more connected world. And I think the, the other big change is, you know, we have this incredible access to media. So we, we can take in, you know, the Twitter and the Facebook and the various social media and, the, and various uh, films that are available to us. And all of that is, is so um, at our fingertips. Um, so I guess, you know, the thought of, of what the composer of opera in 2020 has to do is, is write work that is compelling for the brave new worlds in which we live. So do you have a personal composition philosophy? You, you know, everything that I write, I try to approach from a dramatic lens. So um, if I'm writing a work, uh, well, if I'm writing opera, that makes a lot of sense and it's very much connected to that. But even if I'm writing a, a purely instrumental work, like a piece for orchestra or a piece for piano, I always will create a kind of narrative framework for that work. It's very similar to how I sort of approach people as well. So, you know, we all have the experience of of meeting somebody that we don't necessarily get along with or that kind of rubs us the wrong way. When I have those kind of encounters in my life, I always try to create some kind of backdrop, some kind of narrative that helps me uh, understand the person, even if it's just my own creation and I don't know their exact story. Um, and so I, I do that in my life, but then I also do that in my compositional life where I'll, I'll wonder at the sound world. I'll wonder at the, the, the landscape of the space. I'll wonder at... Um, what the story is, and almost try to build this narrative arc through a piece of music. So I'm always looking for the drama in a work. As you're saying this, Ian, I'm finding myself thinking about Phantasma, which is one of your latest opera projects. So a COC commission, an opera for young audiences that you're composing uh, with librettist Colleen Murphy. And I've been working with you as dramaturg and eventual stage director of that production. And of course, it was meant to premiere earlier this month, but it has been postponed to a future season because of the pandemic. And uh, I'd love for you to speak to the listeners a little bit about your creation process for that. Uh, this this 
project was really interesting because uh, the commission came um, as a work for young audiences. And so not only was it uh, an operatic work, it had a, a series of parameters, if you will. It had a specific length that it had to be. Um, it couldn't be longer than 50 minutes. And it also had a very clear audience in mind. So th these were going to be young people, um, maybe their first experience coming into the opera world and hearing an opera. And the process was wonderful because Colleen Murphy, the librettist, really invited me into the process of creating a story. You know, some I think some people think, you know, making an opera is a librettist sitting in a room, either writing a story completely, writing all the text, and then um, printing it out and mailing it off to the composer who then spends, you know, a bunch of months writing music. Well, the process was not that at all. We had many, many conversations wondering about the sound world and the the theatrical world of of this opera. And then we spent a lot of time just talking about life and talking about emotions and talking about people and wondering at who these characters were. So it was a collaborative building process. And I would say that even extended into the writing of the music. Colleen had uh, a very active role. As I wrote music, I would show pieces to her. She would ask me questions. We'd talk about things like pacing. Is that is that moving too quickly through that idea or is that clear enough? Uh, and so we, we both were involved at every stage of each other's process. Uh, I'm wondering, Ian, what would you suggest to audience members? Like you said, some people might be coming to Phantasma for the very first time, never having attended an opera or never having seen a new opera, for example. What would you say to folks who are coming to a newly composed opera for the first time? What type of advice might you offer them? I think that anytime we, we go to see something that is familiar, for example, um, a, a well, well played opera that we know the, all of the kind of tunes to, um, there's a sense of maybe it feeling safe or familiar just by, vir by virtue of its familiarity. Uh, and we don't get that with, with new work necessarily. And also I would say new work can sound like uh, many different things. Um, some new work may sound like uh, traditional, familiar, older work, and sometimes it sounds quite challenging to the ear. So you're you're hearing sounds that may be completely new that you've never heard before. Um, so I think yeah, maintaining that open disposition is is really important in new new work. I think of just going to see a Mozart opera, and you know there there are many great Mozart operas uh, that have rich uh, character worlds, but a fairly uh, familiar sound world. It's one that is uh, well-balanced and well-proportioned and elegant. And um, even when it gets dark, it's, it's very familiar to the ear. And that's not always the case with new opera. Sometimes you can, you can hear one new opera written today, say by myself versus by another composer and hear two completely different things. Um, so maintaining that openness uh, of, of the ear is, is really um, it will really serve a person while going to hear new opera. There's often a lot of discussion from creators of in underrepresented communities that they feel, whether fairly or unfairly, pressure or responsibility to represent their communities in a way that their counterparts of a more privileged group uh, might not. As a Métis composer, is that something you can relate to? Absolutely. Um, and, and I think I would say part of it is of my own doing. And, and part of it is maybe an external pressure that I feel. 
and it's interesting as even as I think about what are external pressures and what are internal pressures, sometimes the ones that I think are external are really just coming from inside of me. Certainly, I would say I feel a responsibility to uh, when I'm telling a, a story that is from within my community that I am representing uh, that community well. I also know that not I nor anyone else from within my community has the final voice or the final word on on that experience. So I'm, I, I do try to sort of um, calm myself down if I'm getting worried about representation, that I am one voice among hopefully many, and I hope more and more will be, say, creating opera. But I, I want to be one voice and, and try to be true to that voice and true to that experience. But you're right. I mean, often when I'm approached and asked to write an opera for a company, they usually have a very particular idea of what that story uh, that I would explore would be. Um, they are often asking for stories from that are specific to my cultural experience as an Indigenous person. And that's not always the story that I want to tell at a given moment, or I might think is the best story to tell in that moment. So that pressure certainly is there. But I, I really do believe that we have had such a lack of representation of Indigenous stories in opera, especially main, mainstream opera or in, in larger companies um, and on main stages, that I would love to see and have places of, of relation and so almost start building, if you will, the canon of, of interesting, exciting Indigenous stories on the stage. Um, and those stories, I hope that they will be very diverse I hope we will have stories that um, that are funny and stories that are adventure and stories that show uh, resilience and stories that do touch on some of the um, harder, more traumatic elements and experiences. Just like we have diversity in um, more white uh, storytelling, I hope we have the same in our own stories that we, we represent on the stage. So yeah, I, f I, d I do feel pressure I think a lot of that pressure is just self-imposed, but I also feel a lot of um, embrace and acceptance from both within Indigenous communities and also from within the general opera, opera world to begin hearing and, and seeing our stories. And I feel, um, even though if I have, a, I have a, an opera company saying, we want you to write this opera, I find that usually within a conversation or two, if that's not the opera that I feel like I should be writing or that I want to be writing at this time, I can usually move the dial and uh, and encourage them to see a different way into, into a particular story. What you were saying a little bit earlier, Ian, about funny stories, stories of adventure, stories of resilience is making me think about our conversation with Cherie Dimeline. And she shared some exciting news with us about something that you're working on together, an opera adaptation of her novel Empire of Wild. And our understanding is that this has been made possible by a seed commission from the BAMP Centre for Arts and Creativity. And we would love for you to tell us more about this collaboration and your role at BAMP as well. So first of all, Cherie, she is an inherently dramatic writer. She just understands drama. And you can see how when I, I when I read her novels, I can see them on, on a stage or in front of me. They play out in my mind so clearly. And when I first came across her writing, I thought, oh, my goodness, here in this work will be some wonderful dramatic writing and I think could be a great opera. When I read it, I felt like I was reading my family. I was reading my the land that I my feet had trod as a kid. My, my grandparents' land is, is right 
in the heart of where this story takes place. And so it's, it feels like it's, it's absolutely in my bones. And to, to be able to embark on, a, on an operatic telling of this story is just incredible. The Band Center, uh, their program Opera in the 21st Century is a really special program that's been running for many, many years. Um, in fact, it began in the late 40s uh, under a different name. And um, I this didn't year- I realize that. Sorry, that is tremendous. I didn't yeah. know that had that longstanding tradition. It's it's a uh, it's a long-standing program, and just in in recent years, it's really taken on the moniker opera in the 21st century under Joel Ivany's directing, and he has really fashioned a program that allows participants um, and faculty that are invited in to look at where where opera is going, what is opera doing now, um, as opposed to just thinking about old um, historic canonical opera. And this year in particular, with the pandemic resetting so many of our uh, of our experiences, um, he, he used the opportunity to invite in two additional um, co-directors, co-artistic directors. There's the Black soprano Karen Slack from the United States and myself as a, as a composer. Uh, and so we we have joined him in, in fashioning a program that really looks and puts specific light on Black experience in opera and Indigenous experience in opera. And so we're looking at it from all kinds of angles. But one of the great things is that there was this, uh, like you said, seed commission money to uh, begin exploration work on this opera Empire of Wild. And so Cherie will come in as a librettist on the project and will develop uh, a couple of scenes from this opera. And we're really, really excited about that. Thank you. And to all our listeners, if this is intriguing to you, then we encourage you to, to keep your ear out, keep your eyes out for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly something that I can't, I can't wait to see the fruits of your collaboration with Cherie. It's so exciting, Ian. One funny thing I'll say is that I, I've been thinking a lot about, um, as we think about Indigenous opera, um, there was this movement uh, about 100 years ago of, uh, in Italian opera, the Verismo movement of, of showing real life people on the stage and showing um, not just the kings and queens or uh, Greek mythology of yore, uh, but, but showing human beings who are in these heightened, um, emotionally tense experiences where there's this incredible dramatic tension at its core. And so I feel like, you know, w- one thing I'd love to see is this, um, maybe what I'd, I'd call um, an indigenous Verismo tradition. And I think this, this opera can be maybe one in the, in hopefully many um, real life uh, stories. Joan, the main character in this, in this opera is, uh, she works in a in her family's construction company. So she's, you know, during the day she's roofing um, houses and building, building cottages, but she goes on an incredible uh, adventure of uh, discovery and where she has to save both her husband and her community in some ways from the grips of this um, menacing figure. So it's, uh, it's going to be a great story. Do you have any recommendations uh, for Indigenous or non-Indigenous artists and creators that we should be looking out for in the next few years that we should be keeping our ears and eyes attuned for? Um, I had the chance to spend some time with a group of, of Indigenous classical music or Western art music creators in Banff uh, a couple of years ago. And there were so many interesting sounds and approaches that were coming out of out of that space. Um, well, I mean, one one composer that we hear um, that has had a, a growing career is, is Chris Dirksen, who writes really interesting pedal looped uh, cello work and some choral work uh, and is doing some really interesting things there with that are community based as well. Um, 
we have works by Melody McIver. I know Melody had um, done this really interesting take on on Stravinsky's Rite of Spring that was set in a parking lot and had this kind of remix to the uh, the Rite of Spring. So reconsidering, again, old work. Uh, another really exciting composer in that group was Sonny Dayrider. And his work is really, really fascinating. It's this kind of uh, post-minimalist, evocative um, chamber music and piano music. And he's a fantastic pianist as well. And yeah, we're, we're just there's so many voices. There's so many interesting um, takes. And the, the cool thing is that when you hear indigenous classical musicians, you don't really just hear one sound, you're hearing a diversity of sounds. And so um, to try to almost pin down what indigenous classical music sounds like is, is impossible. We're pulling in threads from everything, threads from our cultural roots that are outside of, of European tradition, and then also pulling bits and pieces that we love and, and um, have learned from the Western classical tradition. Given that we've had to delay the premiere of Phantasma, now looking ahead to that happening in a future season, what are you most looking forward to in terms of that work finally encountering its young audience? I'm looking forward to seeing how the young people that come to see it um, engage with the work. This is always the biggest question when you're making uh, making a new work is, is how will it be received? You can plan and you can um, put in place all of the, the pieces that you think will make for a great work. And you really have no idea how it will land until you have that first audience in, which is such a frightening thing. And it's such a wonderful thing. And I, I cannot wait to have a group of young people engaging with this work and and seeing the places where they they find resonance, and then and then seeing the places where maybe they'll have questions or um, and and that's that's that will only happen with people in a room. But you know, I have to say that the other great thing about having some additional time and having the uh, the the premiere postponed by a, a year or so is is that. It's given us time to just pause with the score instead of having to run to the to the finish line or run into production. We've been able to let the score sit and come back to it and ask really thoughtful questions. And so it's just created a bit more space around the work that I think has only made and will only make the work a stronger one when it uh, comes before an audience. It's always fascinating to talk to Ian. Even though we work together often, we don't always have the chance to go into depth on subjects like this. It's so fascinating to hear about how he approaches new work. Yeah, and how he, it feels like it's its not that he has one approach to new work either. He's constantly mm -hmm. re-examining and questioning, what did I do last time? What did I like about that? What might I do next time? And what are these, the next generation, the next up-and-comers, what kind of conversations do they want to have about the ways in which we create and perform? And then he's letting that inform his practice. And the inclusion of nods to the past mm. within all of that. Yeah. Shuri was talking about the seven generations before and the seven generations to come yeah, and how you can really hear that embodied in Ian's work in a way that I think is really special and unique. That's really beautiful. Thinking of these, these threads that are being pulled forward into the present so that we're like keeping them in the tapestry of the artistic work that we're creating and making sure that they too get carried forward into the future. And yeah, the generations that Cherie spoke of and, and what that must mean in terms of responsibility in yeah. the sense of, um, 
you know, I think we're so excited for all the success that Cherie has had. But I also recognize with that the pressure, the responsibility that she must feel in terms of representing those seven generations that have come before her and honoring them in her present work. Mm-hmm. And then to think about, like, it's not a way that is necessarily commonly thought about if you are not part of an Indigenous community. Like, we don't tend to think about what impact will my actions have seven generations from now? How will this shape the world? Is it for the better? Is it going to help? We think more immediate gratification. But there are people who find themselves in circumstances where everything that they do is being looked at by their community and by their family members and looked at very intently. I really liked what Ian said about it being somewhat self-imposed. You don't speak for all European descendants. Like that is not your burden. Right. You speak for Julie and somewhat to your profession. Yeah. And somewhat to where you come from. But you're not thinking, oh, how am I representing my European ancestry? Right. I don't have like all the people of Norway and Ireland and Scotland and France looking at me to be like, Julie, be careful. Yeah. And there is an element of, I know I'm mindful of it. Like, oh, when I say things, how am I representing the Métis community? How am I representing my local council that I sit on and the citizenry in the immediate city, but then Métis beyond that? Oh, you're the Indigenous person. You're the Métis person. What's your take on this? Well, Mm -hmm. my take is Robin's take. Right. That happens to be informed by a lot of things and also has to be mindful of other people. But does it really have to outside of just basic respect and decency and care for, Mm. I don't know, but I really, I really liked him bringing that up and it really got me thinking about a lot. Yeah. Something else is that we talked with Ian about Phantasma, which is an opera for young audiences. And we talked with Cherie about her novels, such as The Marrow Thieves, which was intended for a young audience, but has found a, um, an audience way beyond that in terms of people of all ages reading that book. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I like is that, or what I hope in our conversation is that though we're bringing attention to the importance of work for young audiences, we're not treating it as anything less than work that we create for adult audiences, because it is my belief that there's nothing lesser about it. Well, yeah, I mean, young people, it sounds cliche, but they're the future. They're mm-hmm. the next generation of adults. Like what we put out for them should be as valuable and as carefully considered as what we put out for adults. By, by virtue of what we're putting on the stage, what are we telling them? Mm-hmm. Are we telling them opera must look like this? Or are we telling them opera can be the story that happens in your backyard? Opera can be right. what your grandmother told you. Opera can be your vision for the future. There's this sort of stereotype about opera being for a, an older audience. And maybe that's just because the canon's old. Like they were contemporary stories when they were originally created. But a hundred years later, 200 years later, they're no longer contemporary, even though the stories in them are still relevant to our lives. It's not in that contemporary setting. So young people can't necessarily see themselves connected to that story. 
when I go to the bookstore, I don't go and exclusively leaf through Dickens and the other classics and then with a small section of contemporary books. Right. If you not like 10% contemporary books and then everything else is a reprint of a classic. Yeah, it's it's true because in order for something to become a beloved classic, it needs to have been new. Someone needs to have taken a risk to say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do this opera. And it hasn't been done before, but it's going to be on this subject. And this composer is going to write it. The librettist is going to do this. Uh, So it has to be new before it can become beloved. So we have to be brave enough to let it be new so that it can then come out into the world and then become whatever whatever it will become in our hearts and minds and memories next. Mm -hmm. And I can appreciate that it's like it's much easier to write a new book than it is to create a new opera. Certainly cheaper, I think. <laughs> well, given the resources. Yeah. The skill set involved and the number of people that go into generating new opera, it's it's a much bigger, more involved process. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, and and we also don't mean to disparage older audiences either. Not at all. Knowing that o- older audiences are in a way the lifeblood of opera companies Absolutely. right now in terms of the support, the philanthropic support and the enthusiasm and the love of the art form that sustains a lot of our activity. Uh, but it's really exciting to think, like you said, Robin, if we go into like going into a bookstore or going on Netflix, and there's such a great variety of, of stuff to choose from. And so much of it is new. And so much of it is, is offering us something we've not seen before. Uh, it's just absolutely tantalizing to think about that. I feel like we need a little bit of a better balance. Because both are very important to have the canon to have the classics, to have that knowledge and that understanding and that love. But also, where's it going? Is opera just to be a museum piece? Like, I sure hope not. I'm totally with you. And by virtue of chatting with Cherie today, and we were fans of her work, so we were so excited to have that opportunity to chat with her. What I didn't expect was everything that she brought to the table in terms of talking about opera and the Mm -hmm. impact that she thinks that opera has. And so now I find myself thinking about those cross-disciplinary collaborations. So by virtue of bringing in artists who are from perceived to come from different disciplines and different fields of practice and inviting them into opera creation and making these collisions happen between Ian, for example, who's already created opera and Cherie, who will be working on her first opera. Like It's so exciting to think what's going to happen between those two forces of energy coming together. Yeah. I really liked how she also brought it into a, almost a ceremonial context. Mm. How, you know, you dress up for the opera you, I mean, I don't, I try and look nice and I'm bathed, but if it's going to be three hours, four hours, I'm going to be comfy as well. But there is that tendency. People like to dress up. They put on their opera best and they, you know, you go, you're seen and you see people and it's a social event. And so you, you have this, okay, so tonight we're going to the opera, we're going to dress this way, we're going to do this thing, we're going to go to this auditorium, we're going to hear these musicians who are going to work together to create this thing. So, and the idea that when opera works, it's transcendent. Like one thing Sri talked about, that that incisor, that it gets so deep, it can, you know, you can just like cut right in on a level that maybe other art forms can't reach in that way. 
yeah, the incisor. And it's almost like once something has been expressed through opera in the sense of that classical voice, that embodied power of expressing that message in that way, it becomes irrevocable. Mm-hmm. Once you hear it or experience that story, that message captured in that way, you can't deny its existence. You have to acknowledge exactly. that that truth exists. You empathize differently with that specificity, with that power. You know, it allows you to fully embody that emotional experience just sitting in the audience in a way that like it because it's not just hitting you on an emotional level or just a visceral level or just a visual level. It's everything all at once. So it transports you very differently. Mm -hmm. And that that power is just unreal. And I'm thinking about how lucky we are that we're getting of this generation in this time where new works are being created that we will have the opportunity to witness and to participate in. But we also get to have conversations with their creators Mm -hmm. alongside that. And I recall how Cherie pointed out that, yes, people label her work with words like speculative fiction and other genre things. And they describe her work in a way that maybe doesn't quite align with the way that she perceived it or meant it to be. But she's here to have that conversation with them. She can enter into dialogue and the dynamism that can result. And I often think about, like, what would Mozart say about how he's remembered? Like, Mm -hmm. is it reflective of who he was in that time? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Well, we had this fascinating conversation with Michael Levine on our previous episode, episode four, about this moment in Parsifal that became the central impetus for their whole design. And it was like, wouldn't it be great if we then turned to Wagner and said, well, what do you think about that? Yeah, there's just there's this power in that that we really can be harnessing in such an exciting way. And we are, but we could do more. Yeah, I'm just feeling so grateful thinking back to what Cherie shared about being around the table with her aunties and her grandmothers and everything that she learned or absorbed by virtue of being around them. And you and I referencing how Ian is pulling in things from previously in the canon to be a part of his work. And Cherie is calling on stories of her ancestors and thinking seven generations ahead. And you and I are referencing Michael Levine and what he shared with us on our last episode. So like, we're all around this table together generations backwards generations forwards and we're all influenced by i think a lot more like there's the myth the self-made man myth that we're so married to that our history is only you know it's there but is it that important Mm -hmm. well yeah it actually is really important we are complete products of seven plus generations before us yeah and something ian says a lot and Ian is brilliant and he's very humble about it. He's so quick to credit everyone else who's in the room. I know he said this to the members of the ensemble studio who've been part of workshopping Phantasma, that he mm-hmm. he's so um, ready to express his gratitude to them for how they are informing the creation of the work and the characters and the voices. So he is always the first to say that it's a collective effort. Mm-hmm. And uh And all of those of you listening, you're part of that collective effort, that collective conversation, too. Thank you so much for joining us for this journey through the past, present, and future of opera. We'll be back with a new season starting on January 19th with all new topics that might help you look at opera a little differently. 
Yeah, and we'd love to know what you think, whether it's questions or feedback on our first season or ideas you might have for future episodes. Either tag us on social at Canadian Opera or email us at audiences at coc.ca. We've received some messages via email already, and we saw some reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. We really love hearing from our audience. And remember, if you're a COC subscriber or member, you have access to exclusive bonus content and extended interviews. Bye, everyone. Stay safe, stay hopeful, and we'll see you next time. See you in 2021. Be the first to find out about free events and concerts from the COC by signing up for our monthly eOpera newsletter at coc.ca slash eOpera. Thank you to all of our supporters for making Key Change possible. This week, we want to especially thank every COC member, subscriber, and donor for coming on this journey with us as we explore new ways to share opera's unique power. So to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Key Change, wherever you get your podcasts. Key Change is produced by the Canadian Opera Company and hosted by Robin Grant Moran and Julie McIsaac. To learn more about today's guests and see the show notes, please visit our website at coc.ca slash keychange.